0: Let's take a look at um, this passage, uh, which comes from John chapter 14. John chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. And take you to be with me. That you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him. Lord we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus answered him. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you really knew me. You would know my father as well. From now on. You do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing this work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe may be seated. Sometimes um, whenever um, it's time for a presidential election, you will hear, among other things, a candidate calling for what all people he or she knows want. He speaks about people as if there's uniformity in terms of what they want, what they need, what their desires are. I don't suppose that's a universal principle. I think lots of us want different things. On the other hand, there is commonality in human existence, don't you think? There are some common themes that run through our disposition. And if you take a look at cultures, some of those common themes that emerge very quickly, all you have to do is study just a little bit of history to know this, There's a common belief in every culture that we know of a god or gods that are transcendent and above the world. There's also a common belief among cultures of good and evil. That's just standard. There's also a common belief among all cultures that there is such a thing as the afterlife. Now, granted, not all of the conclusions are the same. Some people believe in more than one God. Some people believe in other gods than the God that we speak of. Some people have standards concerning what is good and what is evil that we would think are turned right upside down and contradictory to our standards. But still the notion of good and evil is there. And obviously, not everyone sees the afterlife exactly the same way. But most cultures around the world, even today, in the 21st century, still believe in the afterlife. Just a a quick um, synopsis of some cultures. The Australian Aborigines people believed that after you died, you would go to a distant island in the West to live forever. The Finnish people believed that after you died, you would go to a distant island in the east to live forever. I don't know, maybe they were the same one, just go like that. The Romans actually believed that life after death was really a gigantic picnic in a beautiful open field with the residents allowing the horses to graze off in the distance while they had a feast and a banquet. You know, um, the Native American people in our country frequently talked about the afterlife as sort of like a happy hunting ground. That is to say, they believed that when they died, their spirits would hunt the spirits of the buffalo. Notice the, the commonality in all those things, not so much the east and the west, but if you dug into it a little more, you would see it in some measure, it's a form of paradise. In everybody's opinion, the life after this life is better than the life that we now have. And that's routinely true in most cultures. Having said that, we're at a point in the Gospel, chapter 14 of John, where you encounter a passage that probably more than any other passage is used at funerals. There are other passages that are used at funerals, but this one will always emerge. Why? Because it seems to be about heaven. Everything we think of when we read the passage reminds us of heaven. But here's the thing. When you try to understand a text, you know around here we try to do this. We try to contextualize it, right? In other words, we try to understand what the first hearers in the dialogue might have understood. And it is not certain at all that the disciples heard a reference to heaven. They may have, but perhaps they did not. Maybe the reference, which we now see as a reference to heaven, just went right over their heads. We have good examples of that, right? There were a lot of things that went right over the heads of the disciples. Jesus had predicted his death right over their heads. Jesus had predicted all kinds of things right over their heads. And on this occasion, remember what the context is. The disciples are with Jesus, and he's about ready to go to Jerusalem, which seems to be a dangerous place to go. And they say to him, Lord, where are you going? He said to them, I'm going away. And they say, away? Where's away? Lord, in effect, they were saying, you've introduced us to the good life. You've told us about the kingdom of God. In your presence, we've experienced healings and miracles in your presence we found our identity as members of the kingdom of God and it's as good as it gets this is wonderful why are you leaving how can everything that you've talked about be true with you absent lord i don't understand where are you going Now, when we look at this passage, we see heaven, and, and I think rightly so. I'm not suggesting that this is not a reference to heaven. As a matter of fact, if the apostles at that time had been alert to the words of Jesus, as frequently they were not, they may have remembered words like the Lord's Prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, where it talks about our Father who, say it with me, art in heaven. Jesus says, I'm going to my Father who is in heaven, inference. Perhaps they got it. Perhaps they didn't. But the baseline is this. He was leaving, and they didn't know where he was going, and they were troubled by that. And that's why he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. I'm going to my father's house. First of all, when you uh, consider this passage, what you'll notice is there is a reality to the location. It's not just ethereal. There really is a place. Uh, that place is not just in the sky. There's no reference to that, as we traditionally think of heaven or have for years. Uh, people have wondered for, for centuries now where the notions of heaven we have came from as it relates to floating around on clouds and all that kind of stuff, you know, you see in the cartoons and other places. All those kinds of things, they really don't come from the Bible. There are images in the Bible which help us to think about heaven, but it's not floating around on the clouds um, playing harps or little cherubs playing harps. There's nothing in the Bible about floating around on clouds and playing harps. In Revelation chapter 14, there is a reference to the fact that in heaven, according to John, he heard this huge sound that was like thunder. And it was also like thunderous harps that's about as close as it gets to harps being played on the clouds and that being heaven but in spite of that of course we still think of harps in heaven and clouds and up there I, I'll never forget um, I happen to know these people some of you do but uh, a gentleman uh, went into the hospital for surgery and um, he came through the surgery and he was recovering uh, slowly, and his wife, who was a wonderful harpist, decided that she would go to his hospital room and play the harp for him. And uh, a friend of mine, Frank Zeller, who's no longer here and now has moved to Texas, he said to me, you know, that was real nice of her, but can you imagine being the guy in the next bed coming out of anesthesia? <laughs> it's like, oh, maybe I didn't make it after all. But <laughs> Some nice music up there. Uh, but th- that's the image we have, right? Harps and heaven and things like that. Um, quite frankly, we don't know. We hear these images like was in the song that preceded this sermon about streets of gold and pearly gates. Those are words used in the Scripture, but we're not quite sure what it means. Apart from the fact that we know that you wouldn't pave streets with gold because gold is too valuable. And maybe the writer is saying the most valuable thing you could conceive of is just like the pavement because heaven is so beautiful and so wonderful. So we don't really know. We don't know exactly where it is or exactly what it is. But according to Jesus, it is somewhere. It's a location. That, it seems to me, is why he used the image of a house. He knew the disciples would understand it. Everybody does. A residence. This is where we are. And he said, there's many rooms for you. But don't you love the way the narrative plays out? Early on in the narrative, Jesus says, you know where I'm going? And Thomas, one of my favorite, if not my favorite, disciples says, no, we don't. Not so fast, Jesus. I have no clue. He's the one who's got to stick his finger in the side and in his hands to see the nail marks. Jesus, I don't get it. You're going away. Where are you going? He speaks for us. He speaks on our behalf. Jesus says, I'm going to my father's house. There's the reality of a location in Jesus' words, but there's also a promise that they will arrive. That's probably the most important thing in the minds and the ears of the disciples on that day. Not what it's like or exactly where it is, but that they get to come. Because in the presence of their Lord is absolute joy. Everything is well. So Jesus says, I'm going And you won't be left alone, he later says in chapter 15, which we'll look at for several weeks in a row. And I'm going first, and and then you can follow. So there's a reality of a location as it relates to heaven. There's also a reality that you've been promised to live with Christ in heaven. And the third thing you see in this text, there's a pathway. It's perfectly clear. Jesus says to the disciples, I am the way, if you want to know how to get there. I am the truth, if you're looking for a location. And I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. You know what we immediately think of? We think of this text as an evangelistic text. You know, a text that says... If you want to go to heaven, you better know Jesus. I don't want to suggest that that's wrong. Okay? But what I want to remind you of is the context. That's not what Jesus had in mind when He spoke to the disciples. What did He have in mind? He was trying to help them understand something. In the context of this statement, notice how it fills out. Basically, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And don't you get it? You've been with me all this time and you still don't see it? Don't you understand? I am the way and the truth and the life because I and the Father are one. To see me is to see God. To see God is to see me. The reason there's no way to the Father except through me is because I am God. It's not just a pathway, it's a relationship, says Jesus. God is standing right here with you. Walk with me, you'll see the face of God. What a wonderful early description of the Trinity. Before the doctrine of the Trinity is ever really developed by the church, Jesus is saying, I want you to understand something apparently you're not getting. The Father and I are one, not just as mission, not just about what we do. We are one. So Jesus promises them a location. He promises them that they can come. He promises them that there is a clear pathway. He's standing in front of them follow Him. And He also, well, not so much in His words, but as to an inference, He promises them an unspoken delight in the reunion. It's it's just hanging in the air, though not stated as such. And you know why I say it's hanging in the air? Because after the disciples heard these words, especially the Apostle Paul, you hear the longings to be with Jesus who will make everything new. There's a delight in the reunion that they anticipate to be with their Lord. Remember Paul's words? The disciple who apparently down near the end of his life uttered words that, we could repeat over and over again and often do, for me to live is Christ. Because I'm in Christ right now. And to die is gain. I'm torn between them, Paul says. I really would rather exit this place and go home to be with the Lord, but I'm going to stick around because I know you need me. But my real place is to be with the Lord. And what did he say about that? Well, he didn't say the house looks like this and the streets look like that and I know all the details. He just said this. To be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. That's all we need to know. That's all that matters. That's all that mattered to the disciples. We just want to come wherever you are. To be with you is life eternal. The unspoken delight of a reunion, um, it was what was in their hearts. And what later is on their lips and their pens. And what later becomes a tradition in the Christian faith. A number of years ago, I guess it was 1995, I I was able to take my first trip uh, to Rome with a friend. Uh, One of the things he and I did uh, was to go to the catacombs. Uh, No one in our group was interested in that. none of them Christ followers. Um, and so we we broke up one day uh, from the group to see the catacombs. I remember being underwhelmed. You know, I, I, I don't know what I was expecting, but it was just, it was sort of dank, and it was inscriptions and stuff like that of people who died because that's where they buried the early Christians. But you know what some of those, inscriptions uh, involved. Words like this. In Christ, Alexander is not dead, but lives. On a tombstone in the catacombs. First century Christians. Who likely had suffered significant persecution and were buried there. Other things that were on those Memorial stones were not just words, but pictures etched in the stone. Pictures of beautiful landscapes with banquets. The point is, you're looking at where they laid us to rest. We've gone to be with our Lord, which is by definition life and paradise. There's also um, extra-biblical evidence for this kind of thing in the life of the early Christians. A, A writer in Rome at 125 A.D. wrote a letter to one of his friends trying to describe what these Christians were like. He wasn't one of them. And he said they're an odd bunch. And here were his words. If any righteous man among them passes from this world... They rejoice and offer thanks to God. They escort his body with songs and thanksgiving as if he were setting out from one place to another nearby. They did that because they believed it. Can I say they did that because life wasn't so good? They did that because they anticipated glory with our Lord because glory wasn't all around them. They were a persecuted minority of people who didn't have the good life according to human standards. You know, some of the most amazing songs um, are the spirituals that were written by African American slaves in our country. And if you ever think about the genre of the spirituals and think back about the songs, you may remember how many references there were to heaven in them. All over the place. Why? Because life wasn't so good. Because to be absent from this body was to be present with the Lord where a taskmaster could no longer make inordinate demands on their service, but where they could serve their master with absolute freedom and in perfection. They longed for the days to be released from this slavery and bondage to other people in this world and even from this world, good as it was, to be in the presence of their Lord. And so they sang and so they wrote songs. I say that as a setup to something. You can tell a lot about where we are as a people based on what kind of songs we write. And here's the reality. There's fewer and fewer songs about heaven. I wonder why. I wonder if it's because life is so good. I wonder if it's because we don't really long for heaven. We just want things to be okay right now. And for the most part, they are. I wonder, does that have anything to do with the lack of songs about heaven? They're there, but not as many as there used to be. So what's the conclusion as we we think about this passage and we think about heaven? Well, one thing to remind ourselves of, right? You've heard of the phrase, that person is too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. It's possible to focus on heaven to such an extent that you just let the world go. Medieval Christians, for the most part, it seems, had that kind of mentality. At least they're said to have had that mentality. How do you know? We certainly have a different mentality, don't we? For the most part, we're not so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. We're constantly fixing the stuff right here, trying to make everything perfect, whether medically or infrastructure. We've got to have it perfect. We want paradise here. We want paradise now. So one extreme, so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. The other extreme, focusing on life here to such an extent that heaven's eclipsed. We don't want to be either place, right? Of course not. Where do we want to be? What do we want to believe? We want to remind ourselves from time to time that is the song, and here it sounds like a contradiction of what I just said, but it's not true, the contemporary song... Put to music, among other things, says this. I want to be close, close to your side. So heaven is real and death is a lie. I want to hear voices of angels above. Singing as one. Hallelujah. Holy, holy. Holy. God Almighty, great I am. Who is worthy? I want to be near, I want to be near to your heart, loving the world and hating the dark. I want to see dry bones living again, singing as one. Hallelujah. Holy, holy. God Almighty, great I am. Who is worthy? None beside thee. God Almighty, great I am. The mountains shake before you. The demons run and flee at the mention of your name, King of Majesty, before the power and the presence of the great I Am, the great I Am, the great I Am. Hallelujah. Holy, holy. God Almighty, great I Am. Who is worthy? None beside thee. God Almighty, great I Am. What should our perspective be? That heaven is real. And for those who believe, death is a lie. John put it this way. You're going to die, but you're going to live. It's like simultaneous. Death is an entrance into life because of the work of Jesus Christ. So what should we do? live with that reality. What else should we do? We should not focus on the details. They're kind of fun, but we can get bogged down with the details and get really kind of silly, like little cherub creatures playing harps and stuff and floating on the clouds. Instead of focusing on details, which most of the time are more like images, uh, metaphors, we should focus on the presence of Christ. Because that's what the disciples saw here. We want to be with you, Lord. Wherever you are, we want to be. And then the third thing I think we ought to do is to remind ourselves of what we know. Here's what we know. In the presence of Jesus, there will be no more tears and no more sorrow. In the presence of Jesus, there will be no more sickness and no more death. In the presence of Jesus, sin will no longer afflict us. I don't know if it's my age or studying the scripture so much or my life stage. But when I think of heaven, I do think no death. I think no pain. But honestly, my friends, the thing I long for the most is to be free of sin. Unfettered by the stuff that gets in the way of me and my Lord. Falling off like scales. Never to be dealt with again. So that I could live perfectly in the presence of the one who loved me and gave himself for me. That day is coming. It's not like we're supposed to hold on till it gets there. We're supposed to anticipate the pure delight of living in that reality because that is to be with the Lord. Are you longing for that day? I know I am. If you haven't thought about it much recently, refocus on it. It's real. It's coming. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for... um, The reality of the afterlife. Funny we should even call it the afterlife because it's actually real life. You tell us uh, in the scripture that our life here is like a vapor. It's just a wisp in the wind. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And true life, Lord, is eternal to be with you. So we thank you for the reality that one day we will live eternally with you and that all pain and sickness and sorrow will completely disappear. And as you tell us, you wipe every tear from our eyes. What a, what a wonderful image, especially for those of us who've been parents and trying to comfort little children and wiping those tears off their cheek. You'll wipe every tear from our eyes. And Lord, we will be unfettered, released from the sin, as the book of Hebrews reminds us, that so easily besets us, that so weighs us down. We'll be in the presence of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who loves us perfectly and demonstrated his love in the cross and in the resurrection that gave us life. We long for that day, Lord. As we long for it, may we anticipate it deeply, but may we serve you completely. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.